0: This is Unstructured. Today we have a different kind of guest on, Dr. Jason Piccolo. Now, Jason has just written a book, um, Unwavering, A Border Agent's Journey from Hunter to Hunted. He's also the host of The Protectors. How are you doing today, Jason? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing great. Now, I'm going to have to do something that's really lazy, and I hate it when podcasters do this. I typically do my research, and I describe what your job is, your job title is, but honestly, I can't quite figure out what you are and what you've been. So if you could help us go through, because you know, there's ICE, there's Border Patrol, there's Customs, and
1: you're sort of all over the place. And I need an assist. Uh, Yeah, definitely. Well, in the 1990s, I was in the military, U.S. Army, as an enlisted guy. I did artillery. Oh, awesome! I was uh, artillery, and then uh, National Guard. I was intel, and then I commissioned as an infantry officer in the reserves. And then I started out my border, uh, my federal career in the border patrol in 19, uh, not 1999, uh, 2000. Did that for a while, and then I became what they call a U.S. Customs Service Special Agent. Which then, after the creation of Homeland Security, became ICE. Okay.
0: So and it was the agency that kind of threw
1: things up because. Yeah. Cause then I jumped over it. I, I was involuntarily recalled in oh five oh six, did a tour in Iraq. Uh, when I came back, I actually worked for DOD for a bit, for about two and a half years. Okay. And then I went back to ICE <laughs> and I worked at ICE for about, uh, geez, 2009 through 2016. So yeah.
0: Wow. Okay. Now I actually, um, did some work with my father back in the late 80s at um, Artesia, New Mexico. Yeah. For FLETSI. Are you familiar with that?
1: I am. And where I went to FLETSI, the uh, Federal Law Enforcement Training Center, was in Glinco, Georgia. Okay. And then I also did some uh, training there with the FLETSI one in Charleston, uh, South Carolina, for their fugitive operations course.
0: Now, one thing I noticed when I was working there is – all the agents were walking around, or I guess prospective agents, I, I guess they really weren't at that point. And they were all um, doing Spanish immersion. Is that a normal thing? And what I was told that they were not allowed to speak English whatsoever. They had to the entire time while they were on the course, even ordering food, talking to each
1: other, had to continuously speak Spanish. Is that. Well, it's, it's almost like that. You don't have to continuously speak Spanish, but if you fail your test, you could lose a job. So it behooves you, that old military word, to always <laughs> – I hate that word, but you have to learn Spanish. So the best way to do that is to immerse yourself, and that's exactly what they were doing, I'm sure. Okay. Well, it was, yeah, it was kind of cool seeing that and
0: following that. Um, I'm, I'm one of those people now. I'm tiptoeing around it, but we're definitely going to get deep into the subject because – Right now, obviously, the border, the wall, all these concepts are really hot-button issues. And it seems like everybody has a strong opinion on it, but not everybody has a lot of knowledge. Would that that's, be a
1: fair? Yeah, and that's the thing. is That's one of my biggest goals over the past seven, eight months since I started doing media and writing my book was kind of get the idea of what the border is really like. And it, nobody has a real concept unless the they've actually been down there and actually worked it.
0: Now, to put my perspective in there, so everybody knows, because we all have our own agendas, we all have our own biases, I'm a little all over the map. I grew up in Tucson. So I am kind of familiar with um, illegal immigrant alien situations based on just where I grew up, kind of people around me, and some perspectives. But at the same time, I also was stationed in Cuba in Gitmo, and this is pre. Nine Eleven. Mm-hmm. So it's when the Cuban refugees were all sequestered there. Yeah, because Clinton turned the ships back and and kept them trapped there. So I, I really have a lot of mixed feelings. I can't say that I I come down completely one way or the other feel like the problem is much
1: larger in scope than just one basic solution. Oh, I agree uh, completely. I actually have a, it's a multifold approach. You need, it's not just the aliens. It's, it's not the migration patterns as much as it is the, uh, the narco trafficking and everything else. And I always believe that we need comprehensive immigration reform. Uh, that's a big key word. We always need that, but it needs to be bipartisan, but we also need to do something about addiction on this side of the border. Cause everybody wants to lump in the border is all, it's all migration. Uh, it's, it's just, the border is just overflowed with everything. And, you know, I worked narcotics for years and I worked for, uh, I worked immigration for years. So I always think that we need to have a, a message down south is that, you know, you can't come here and get an immigration benefit because there's none available for you yet unless you have a legitimate asylum claim. And then up here at the border, we don't need a full wall. Because a full wall would not be feasible or practical, but you do need to enhance areas, and I always say you need sections to funnel the traffic into um, specific areas. So let's say you lived in Tucson. Mm-hmm. Now, if you had a wall, now I detailed out to Ajo, which is uh, it's south of it's south of Tucson. Yeah, butt crack Arizona. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, exactly,
0: <laughs> and. Uh, I had to look on the map again because I knew that Ajo was that way when I was living there. But it was kind of like, yeah, it's out there. There, If you're dying in the desert on a horse that drops dead under you, you might be almost to it. And you know what? You brought up a
1: good point because that is my biggest thing about about walls and fences or whatever is when you funnel traffic to certain areas, you know where the the, the migration patterns are going to come. So not only are you going to apprehend anybody coming across, but you could also save people who are, you know, in a potential crisis. And that's where the border patrol actually has entire units called Boar Star. and their main goal is to either—it's um, to rescue agents and aliens. And that's the thing: is if you have an open border, there's just so much flow, migration flow coming across. That you can't possibly monitor the whole thing, even with the best technology you have. Yeah, that reminds me, and this might be a
0: side story, but um, there's a Tohono Odom <coughs> mm-hmm. uh, Indian reservation there. And that was a kind of weird one. I learned a lot about them because their reservation actually crosses the US Mexican border. So they have half the tribe in Mexico, half the tribe in the US, and there's, but yet a reservation is technically its own country. So it a, it's a really squirrely situation. And when I was driving to teach down there, because I was teaching technical courses, I saw the weirdest parade of people I'd ever seen. Yeah. And I was like, what in the world? I mean, literally for about three miles, just twos and threes of people just, just walking alongside the highway. And when I got there, they said, oh, yeah, yeah, that, that's, that's border crossing people.
1: Yeah. You can go back and forth. And that's the thing is about Ajo is like on uh, one side, you have the Organ pipe national uh, park. And then the other side is uh, it's a Tohoto O'odham reservation. So it's, it's just a, a weird area down there, especially trying to. And the thing about the reservation is you can go on it to look for traffic, but it's not, uh, how can you tell who's who down there?
0: Yeah. And that, that was the weird part is I, I asked about it. I go, well, what do you do? I well, they typically just go pull up and say, "Everybody wait here, and then we'll bring a bus back." <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it almost just seemed like a a genial setup. Like, okay, carry on; we'll be back for you. Exactly. <laughs> and and that was definitely weird. So obviously, there there is um, some leakage, and I think that may bring into question about other means. Like I know people used to make fun of Mitt Romney. He had an interesting idea about let's really focus on the technology and the employers.
1: Yes. And that is, I actually wrote an op-ed about the I-9 checks. You really have to, what's the enticement is to come here and you can grab these jobs. You could work, send money back down South and that's great. Nobody's going to bother you. But if you go out and you make the employers accountable, then it's going to, the draw to come here isn't going to be as strong, at least to come to certain areas. So that is effective. Then you think it is effective. Yes. But the thing is right now, without any type of real immigration reform, there's always going to be the thought in the back of your head. If I get to the United States and get a foothold, then I may have an opportunity either to become a permanent resident or to become eventually a citizen. So until you take that enticement away by either enforcing laws uh, enhancing our current laws or even just you know piecemealing these laws out and redoing them, then there's always going to be the enticement to come here. You're never going to stop that. It's the American dream. You see, and that's where I
0: get confused too, because I do have a dose of Milton Friedman. I hate to say his name out loud because some of my audience is probably not a fan, but he brought up, I think, a very valid point that as long as you have a welfare state, then you start to run into problems with benefits going to certain people. If you eliminate that somehow, then maybe we really don't care so much. Maybe it's a matter of if you can come and you can perform better, fine. I can tell you, and this is, again, th- this is why I tell you, I'm all over the map. My dad was a contractor. Most of the best workers, truthfully, are illegals or, or Mexicans who got here over
1: time. No, and There's good workers either way. And that's the thing is I always had this thing like, you know what, we should enhance our – um our visa uh, process and uh, let people come across for a certain amount of time. They could work and then they have to go back down South and then come back over and get vetted And by vetted, you know, running the, the criminal history checks and everything else in order to see if they've um, committed any crimes in the U S or anything else that's going to make them uh, ineligible to come across the border.
0: And most of them actually would volunteer to go home every few months anyway, because yeah, definitely their families back there, And they come up, work, you know, kind of like a, uh, we have people who do that in a fishing boat. So I don't think it's all that different. You know, go out in the fishing boat, Mm -hmm. make a whole lot of money, prospectively in a short period of time. And then you go home for the family and live the rest of the year.
1: Well, right now, you know, you and I could probably talk about immigration all day long and and come to the same conclusions that something needs to be done about it. But right now it's so political that it's so far left, so far right. Some people want a complete wall uh mine the border down to you know open borders. So there's Right. there's a lot more in the middle of the road than there are on either to left or right. But you know we're looking at we're in the age of the social media. You know the biggest I'd like to say let's take a look back in 1990s when mm-hmm. Bill Clinton started Bill Clinton actually had he had Pretty some strong. of the, the strongest, Crime. strictest immigration. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, look at Elian Gonzalez. I mean, we sent the SWAT team in to have him deport <laughs> yeah. a five-year-old kid. Yes, with uh, rifles and – Yeah, MP5s. Horrible picture. Oh, horrible. Um Was it warranted? Could we just wait it out? You know, it was so political back then. But all you had back then was the TV – and the newspaper. Now you could, you know, jump on social media and you you have, you know, snapshot journalism, I call it, hip pocket journalism. You just go down there and get a picture by the border and say, oh my gosh, there's nothing going on here. But is anybody going down? That's the thing is they're going down there and doing photo ops at like 3 p.m. in the afternoon in San Diego when it's sunny and you're up by a fence. But one thing I wanted to, the, the preface back to uh, – or not preface, but head back to the Bill Clinton time was he enacted uh, Operation Gatekeeper in San Diego which was a 14-mile fence from the Pacific Ocean to the Otay Mountains. And what that did is they erected a a 10, 15-foot high fence, and it pushed all the traffic, pushed all the traffic east. And what happened with that fence getting erected is you weren't having mass, you know, 100 people running up the highways anymore. The traffic was getting funneled away. So in that area, there's a suburb of San Diego called Chula Vista. Chula Vista was just usually just in an urban area right outside of San Diego that with no economic prosperity but since that wall got erected, or fence they've built thousands and thousands of homes there Uh, tons of malls and huge influx of millions and millions of dollars I mean, well the wall you can't do throughout the whole border but you can push the traffic you're never going to stop migration flow you could build the biggest wall in the world but you have to – it has to be a full approach. Right. So uh, on that, because um,
0: I'd like to leap um, around. This is unstructured. But <laughs> our biggest concerns, I guess maybe that's one of the things, is is anybody breaking down a list and saying, here are the real problems. Because everybody has their little pet problem, and they don't necessarily look at the bigger picture. And part of the reason I I definitely wanted to have you on here is – I'm afraid your message may not be getting out as well as you like because it's all right wing outlets.
1: Oh yeah, definitely. I, uh, I have no other outlet. I've hit up MSNBC. I've hit up CNN. I've hit up every major network. I've hit up politicians. I told everybody in the world, I'll come down there and I'll testify all day long. Uh, the only monetary benefit I've gotten out of anything is I wrote a book, but everything I've done over the past eight, nine months has been all free and I've jeez, I've been on Fox, what, 20, 30 times now, just trying to talk about what's going on. Right, but then that's Fox. Yeah, and exactly. you have an audience.
0: <laughs> and, and I even qualified it. I have a Facebook group, and I'm hoping that everybody will come to the group because if you have opinions about this, please come to the group, and I'd like you to join the group if you don't mind. Sure. And address your concerns because I can tell you um, I have a concern I'll go into later with a member of the group, a former guest of the show. She's an immigrant. And she went through a rather harrowing experience. She is from uh, the Czech Republic. Mm -hmm. So she has very strong feelings about immigration due to her own personal experience. I think it would be cool that you could have the ability to answer these. Because I feel like I announced it to the group. I said, he's been on all right-wing outlets. So there's definitely a conservative leaning that you may see in this. Mm -hmm. And people started to look it up. And one thing I, we noticed is it was almost impossible to find your um, court case. I found the the case filings and what happened, but for some crazy reason, and we're going to go into that story later, there's not much out there.
1: No, no, you can't find it. And that's the thing is it's, it's been buried. Believe me, that is a whole... Story. That's a whole book in itself right there. And we're going to get to that because, I mean, that's a
0: a very huge concern. And I think that something everybody can get behind. Now, one of the issues I think everyone would agree with is we have a real serious narcotic problem, especially opioid problem in the States. Mm -hmm. Definitely. People are dying. I think it's more than car accidents now, which is just beyond insane. And there's a lot of fingers to point you know, who's causing a problem. There's doctors who are over prescribing opioids, Mm -hmm. which then turn people into addicts. And then they hit the street when they get cut off. And I know you have personal experience with um, narcotics that I want to go into, but would you agree that drugs
1: are more of a health problem than a crime problem? I'm 50, 50 on that. You know, I know that I've been, I've worked the dope game for years And I know what people are making money off of it. And yes, you know, it's a huge concern, but it is also a health concern too. And I believe that we need to have addiction counseling over here. We need to look at it as a health crisis as well. Believe me. Okay. Because I think, you know,
0: it's one of those, I'm not saying, okay, I actually am saying legalize everything, but that's just my personal view because I feel like it is impossible to stop the flood of everything there is out there and more people are dying, not specifically, they are dying from the drug use itself, but all the harm is coming about from people stealing to get the funds, killing each other in order to sell the product. And every incentive in the world is causing actual death seems to be from the criminality of it. Maybe I'm wrong. You can help me on that.
1: No, we definitely need prison reform, especially when it comes to the marijuana aspect of it. And, uh, it's the whole thing about the addiction, and it's not just people killing themselves. The other problem is you're getting the the counterfeit narcotics too coming across. People are, mm-hmm. you know, these opioids, and that's where the I, you know, I didn't know much about fentanyl until I started really looking into it about a month ago, and how they're lacing the drugs with the fentanyl, and that's what's killing people, yeah. and that's where you have the law enforcement who come into contact with it. So yeah, and then you also have you also need uh, agents to go, and that's, you know. It always a lot of it comes back to the border, and a lot of it comes back to what happens south of the border, and that's where I always come into kind of jumping all over the place. But we need more special agents. We need more DEA diversion people, like uh, intelligence. Well, DEA diversion are the ones who go after these pill mills. They're the ones who monitor the doctors. Ah. Okay. Uh, we need different types. We don't need just need boots-on-the-ground border patrol agents and ICE officers. We need actual special agents. Let's say you need Homeland Security special agents. You need DEA special agents who can actually disrupt and dismantle these criminal organizations. And then on this side of the border, you also need the DEA diversion, uh, which is they're not quite special agents. They're unarmed. But what they do is they monitor the doctor's uh, prescriptions and make sure that everything's on the up and up. So there's different aspects of this whole problem. And that's like you said before is everybody has their own little like little niche thing that they're working on. But there's the whole – it's the whole system that you need to actually understand before you could say we need a wall now. We need to legalize this. Uh, We need to do this. We need to do that. There's like a whole system about it. You want to legalize marijuana? Sure. You want to hammer doctors for prescribing narcotics? Sure, do that too. But you have to – You have to understand the whole concept of what's going on. Well, that
0: reminds me because I feel like a lot of the quote enforcement or monitoring is a joke. And I'll give you a perfect example. Do you live in in the uh, Virginia side of D.C. or? Yeah, I live over in in Virginia. Okay. If you go to buy some nasal decongestant that has pseudoephedrine, you have to go and turn in your ID at the pharmacist. To buy an over-the-counter drug that has very little of it. Why? Because, well, I guess they stopped crystal meth production cold. I it's a miracle. They've been carting people now for years who want to buy cold medicine. And thank God for it. Because crystal meth
1: it stopped, right? Oh uh, no, no, I didn't. And actually, you know, I don't know if you were going to get into that, but I didn't only just work narcotics, and I don't know if you read any of my story, but I lost my brother to, uh, to drugs. Yeah, I and know. he was uh, he started off with the marijuana. Uh, marijuana wasn't good enough for him. Um, he wanted he went into cocaine, and later on he um, he w- he got into uh, crystal meth. But what happened was he was doing cocaine and a at the same time. He was a boxer. Mm-hmm. And he ended up destroying his heart. So then right. later on, you know, his heart just—you know—he was playing basketball and ended up just dying while he was incarcerated. Wow. So I mean, wow. that's why I—I th- I, I really wholeheartedly believe in in addiction counseling. We need to look at the whole problem. You can't just say if you st- there's a war on drugs, 1990s, uh, Nancy sure. Reagan, we're going to fix this problem by sending people into schools and saying, "Dare, do not." Drug resistance. uh what was that? Dare. Just was, say no. Yeah, yeah, just say no. But it doesn't work that way. You need people are always going to seek out some sort of addiction, and that could be anywhere from you know, you know, alcohol is an addicting thing. So it which Yeah, it, it's
0: as poisonous as anything you've named. Just about mm-hmm. alcohol
1: is among
0: the worst, and ironically, some of the greatest known addicts, like Jim Morrison. Yeah. Finally, he just went straight to alcohol. It's like, yeah, he'd been through oh. every drug out there and just died a drunk. Mm-hmm. I mean, so we we have efficient ways to kill ourselves, and it seems silly. And I brought up the pseudoephedrine for just that reason. How is it we can track and worry about Eric's cold medicine, but we are having problems tracking OxyContin?
1: I, you know, I agree. It's
0: like, is there something a little skewed here? We obviously have the technology. We obviously can monitor
1: at least the legal patterns. But you still need it's technology is great. But you know, you were military, I was military, um, a lot of law enforcement. You always need that human area behind it, the human intelligence. Mm -hmm. And you also need someone that can actually go out and do the job. Not everybody can be, you know, CSI, special agent, you know, behavioral analysis unit, the FBI. You really need to understand the whole how to do it. How to go Quite out there great. and monitor, how to track these criminal organizations, how to track just regular doctors. And if you don't have the right people behind the badge, then uh, how do you fix that? Well, again, maybe
0: by treating things as a health issue versus a criminal issue, you have a whole bunch of people who can provide you great intel. Yeah, of course. They're called addicts. Yeah. And as they're seeking help, hey, how did you do it? I mean, <laughs> I can't think of a better source of somebody to tell me how to get hooked up with something than somebody who gets hooked up with something.
1: Oh no, And a lot of law enforcement does use addicts for uh, criminal intel. But it's not just a law enforcement, you know, because once you – here's – I'm going to give you a story. It doesn't have to do with drugs. Sure. But when I first took over the office in Delaware uh, as a fugitive operations supervisor for ICE, I, you know, I had 13 people underneath me for the whole state. And our goal was, you know, we were chartered to go after uh, people who stayed here, overstayed their um, their residency, and they had a final order removal. But we were also charged with going after criminal aliens who we could remove, i.e. gang members, stuff like that, who committed serious and egregious crimes and were convicted of it. So when I got down there, I said, you know what? We don't have a working relationship with any non-governmental organizations down here a lot of these Christian organizations, a lot of these pro-immigrant, pro-migration. So what I did as they would come in and visit the office with their clients uh, because a lot of clients had to report on a weekly basis, kind of like a monitoring. Mm -hmm. I would sit down with them and I'd say, look, I know you have a lot of clients that were either a victim of domestic abuse, they were raped, they were abused by their, their spouse, partner, significant other, Mm-hmm. And their spouse, partner, significant other may be removable. So yeah. what I told them is like, I don't have to determine the alienage of anybody. That's not my job. I'm not the border patrol. I don't have suspicion. As an ICE person, I don't have to go, hey, are you here illegally? It's not, my, it's not my job to do that. So what I started doing was building up a relationship with these NGOs and saying, hey, look, if you bring in your client, they can give me a license plate. They can identify the abuser. They can give me information that I could use and go out and apprehend them. And if they're removable, uh, remove them. Get them out of the picture so they're not abusing that person anymore. And a lot of these NGOs were very receptive of that because they trusted me. You have to build trust in law enforcement. And that would be the same way when it comes to the addicts. If you have some sort of person who's in a position of authority, police, law enforcement, healthcare provider that they can trust to give over that intelligence, uh, then it'll work out. But once you burn that trust down, it's done. And that's one of my big
0: concerns because I think what you just described is awesome. I think um, I'm willing to bet that the vast majority of people listening will be like, oh, really? That makes so much sense. That's cool. Is that a shared
1: philosophy and culture? Within the organization, it was around the people I was with. Now, did it happen everywhere? No, absolutely not. A lot of people believe uh, within and outside the organization that anybody here illegally needs to go. May I? I just look at it this way: If you're not, I don't have to. I always use that philosophy. If I'm in a border region, or if I'm a border patrol agent, I'm an immigration official. Am I charter? Or am I? I'm charged with going out there and apprehending those who are here legal, illegally then i'll go out and you know interview people and find out if they're illegally and apprehend them but as an ice ice enforcement and removal operations are you really your main charter or charge is to go out and uh, remove people who either have a final order removal uh, they have a criminal background and and different criteria you're not out there just to go find your mo- i call them the mom and pop uh migrants who are here overstayed their you know not overstayed, but uh are just here
0: illegally. You're focused more on crime and you have a bit more of a nuance for you.
1: Yeah, because well I, I think a lot of it is my background with uh you know as a special agent and knowing what resources are available out there. If I have thirteen people and I'm covering a whole state of Delaware, which has a ton of migrants there, a ton, thousands of thousands, and really hundreds of thousands, do I want to focus on mom and pops? As I call them, or those are here just illegally, or do I want to go and find out who these bad, the gang members, the ones with the uh, the criminal convictions, the egregious criminals out there are, you know, with thirteen people, including support staff, that's not a lot of people. Hmm.
0: That's part of the reason I brought up the question about the culture because I feel like there's some bad apples. You and I were both in the military, and we know that there are some people who can be pretty hardcore and some people who are mm, not as much. Well, there's bad
1: apples everywhere too. And that's every single organization I've been with military, uh, DOD everywhere always has some sort of bad apple. Someone that's kind of looking out for themselves or someone that just, they're too hardcore. And yeah, ice has those people. I'm sure I tend to stay away from that type of people. And I always have in my career. And if anybody was in my, uh, let's say zone, i call them out on it. And I've done that. Believe me. Is there any work within the organization though? Because you
0: know how, sorry, the assholes get embedded Mm -hmm. and they tend to rise. And then if you have a section leader, who's an asshole or a commander, who's an asshole um, making perpetuate, is there anything in the organization from the top that
1: is looking to temper that or, or stop that? I think so. A lot of, you know, over at least over on the HSI side, Homeland Security Investigations side, I've had a lot of my friends rise to the top. And they actually look and say, hey, you know what? If you're an asshole, you know, you don't belong here. Go do something else. Um, over on the enforcement removal side, I don't really have a, a lot of uh, current knowledge of anybody who's up on top. I do know that Ronald Vitello is coming over from the Border Patrol. I haven't heard anything bad about him yet. Uh, mm-hmm. But I haven't really reached out. You know, I kind of have my own opinions now, so I kind of stick to them. Well, that's fair. I
0: just, you guys have, I would never, you know, if I had a kid who was saying, hey, I want to go into something, I'd be like, don't do ICE.
1: Well, yeah, that's part (laughs) of it. I mean, I don't know. I want my kids to be, uh, I don't know what I want them to do, whatever they want to do, except. uh, I mean, your wife
0: is an FBI agent, right? Yes. She can hold that banner proud. Nobody questions it. Well, actually, maybe a little now, but. (laughs) It, it, it's been a pretty good ride in general. Like FBI,
1: hey, hold the flag, very cool. Well, I don't Hi. know. Well, no. and, and that's the thing that was like the FBI. I love the FBI. Uh I mean, obviously, <laughs> I've been married to an FBI for <laughs> how many years? I almost twenty-five. So uh, yeah, I don't know. And that's the thing: is anybody have a real positive image in law enforcement anymore? And how do you get people to get into law enforcement that want to do it for the right reasons? You know, I always tell people don't just especially now because I do a lot of volunteer work with this organization called Higher Heroes USA mm-hmm. where I help people um with their resumes, uh mentor them, try to get them the federal law enforcement jobs. Veterans and spouses that you know coming off active duty. But the thing is, how do you I I always tell them right off the bat, don't do it if all you want is a badge and gun. That's not the right way to do it. I always say if you want to go into law enforcement, find out something, it's almost like becoming a specialized doctor. Find a crime that you think you want to investigate for at least five to seven years. After that you a lot of people change their their viewpoint on things. Um, and that's the thing is if you want to go out there and get criminal aliens, join ICE. If you want to go out there and go after dirty doctors, either join health and human services or join the FBI. If you want to go out there and go after mail fraud, join the postal inspectors. So there's always these there's so many different agencies with niches out there. Mm-hmm. And something you can do. But the thing is nowadays, how do you how do you get anybody to go into law enforcement? You walked
0: right into one of my pet peeves. Why are there so many agencies and niches out there?
1: I personally feel like that's a problem. Mm. You know, that is one problem, but then you have certain areas where let's look at the FBI's where you have a they have so many different aspects of the FBI and so many different feet in the fire of sure. things are they're they're you know violent crime task force drugs they're pretty much doing everything fraud fraud you know, IRS yeah. who goes mm-hmm. with that and
0: you have Secret Service who goes into that and counterfeiting across multiple organizations and what's the ATF doing by the way and hey guess what you were in the army what does the army cover
1: yeah military power fraud
0: units everything right how can you have one organization the army and they somehow managed to cover such a wide swath. Why can you not have a domestic law enforcement agency,
1: an international
0: law enforcement agency?
1: Well, then I think you have the problem of uh, the chain of command. Cause I think you just, you mentioned something before about, you know, it sometimes it does rise to the top.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: So if you have everything under a centralized chain of command, I think there's too much power. Well, there's somebody who would say that now.
0: There yeah, there's, that's, there's that's some people truth. upset about the uh, commander-in-chief at the
1: moment. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> it's just how do you – I believe me, I agree. I think the ATF and DEA should all be merged under DOJ. or Actually, DEA, um, a lot of people – With CIA. I think DEA would go more with Homeland Security Investigations because a lot of people don't understand the mission of Homeland Security Investigations. What is it? And they actually – so if you look at ICE as a whole – ICE is broken up into two branches. One is enforcement removal operations, and one is HSI, Homeland Security Investigations. Now, HSI does have a little snapshot into the migration, i.e., the work uh, they deal with the I Nines and uh, workforce or um, worksite enforcement, uh, human trafficking, hum, uh, child exploitation, a lot of stuff that has an immigrant background into it. Anything with an international nexus, HSI. Does that's why they do narcotics. That's why they do smuggling organizations. That's why they do arms and secu- uh, trade security control type Can you stuff. Back up and just define an international nexus. I've heard you use it a few times. Oh yeah, international. Think about this: the border and anything beyond. Okay. And that's the uh, you know my book was originally going to be called Nexus, but I'm like nobody knows what Nexus is. So you have to have a nexus. You have to have a connection to the border, a connection to an international or let's say an international connection. And that's where like a lot of ICE as a whole only does 40% immigration, and that's where the ERO aspect comes into it. I wrote an op-ed a few months ago. I said, you know what? Get rid of ICE. All you're doing with ICE right now is you're having HSI, which is getting muddled with the whole ICE acronym, Mm -hmm. and you have ERO on the side. So take ERO, either put them under CBP, Customs and Border Protection, or have them report directly to the DHS and then do the same thing with Homeland Security investigations. Get rid of that layer of bureaucracy right now. That Do we really need an ICE director? Do we need a Homeland Security director? Uh, Yeah. Well, you need someone to run the organization. It's a huge organization. The same thing with like, would, do you need a, a- But I mean, that got put in place <clears> by Bush.
0: <throat> I mean, it's not like there weren't um, organizations prior to that point. It was supposedly going to
1: streamline things. And really, we've spread out more. Yeah, we've definitely spread out more. Um, that's a whole another animal. I mean, you you took all these different organizations that out from under DOJ and Treasury, and you kind of put them under one umbrella. Yeah, you have the Coast Guard in there, for God's sake. That's true. I used to be Customs, which was underneath Treasury. <laughs> <laughs> and the thing is, when we were U.S. Customs Special Agents, we would have a whole different seizure fund. So when we would seize all these vehicles and everything coming across the border with, with narcotics in them or smuggling aliens, you could – um. Well, not aliens, but just uh, uh, other commerce type stuff. You could sell those vehicles and use that money to support operations. Now the money's yeah. back under Treasury. So, I mean, you you lost out what they call the uh, the seizure fund. Which is
0: good and bad, again, because we've got some pretty corrupt departments out there who are using seizures to fund things on their own. Yeah, I don't know
1: anything about that.
0: <laughs> and I'm not necessarily saying um, – National, but there is kind of a perverse incentive when you have a husband and a wife, and the husband's found something doing something illegal, and all of a sudden they lose their house and everything. The wife's on her ass. Oh yeah, that's that's different. That's the asset
1: forfeiture stuff, and DOJ DOJ does most of that. Yeah.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So I, I mean, everything, and again, that's why I want to tiptoe down the trail called nuance, and I feel like we're not doing that as a whole. It's either throw everybody out. Or let everybody in, as you put it. No,
1: and like I said, there's there's really no middle of the road right now. How do we get to that point? I don't know. Do you have any ideas? I do. Bring me down to Congress, get a whole bunch of people that are actually working these things at the ground level, and talk about it. Inform them. Have them make informed decisions. And it's not just the enforcement areas. It's the ones who are doing – now, USCIS, U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services, a lot of those people are very – I'd say 99% of USCIS is pro-migration. Have those types of people talk too. I'd love to talk with them and find out what they're, how they feel about the thing. Put everybody in a room and talk the stuff through. You can't, and, and you, what'd you say before? Things rise to the top, right? You can't always bring these same leaders, quote unquote <laughs> leaders and managers into the room with these politicians. Cause all they're doing, they're either one going to tote the party line or just look at their career and say, oh, I better not say shit. or right. I'm going to, uh, Gonna get busted down to the field again. You gonna itemize the problems? Would that help? Do you think? What do you mean?
0: Um, as opposed to saying we need comprehensive immigration reform, that is so vast. It is. We it's almost. A, it's a vague thing. No, and that's so why I always what say, if you peace, "itemize it."
1: Well, one, one thing I said is when we we're doing this, uh, uh, the last almost government shutdown, the, the night before there was like eleven hundred page document. Okay, sign this, or we're gonna shut the government down. Well, you know what? Take that 1,100 pages and piecemeal it. I, I'm a huge proponent. You have a problem that can be fixed, fix it. Don't look at it as a whole system. Piecemeal this whole system. Because if you try to do comprehensive immigration reform, it'll never happen. It's funny you brought that up.
0: I had a previous guest on, uh, Jen Briney, and her whole thing is um, Congressional Dish. It's a podcast, mm-hmm. and she watches c So You don't have to. <laughs> but. The night before the shutdown, they did have an emergency meeting, and it was on the veracity of the term cheese.
1: Uh, And that's the thing, is you can get wrapped around the axle. Well, you can't make this shit up. No, you can't. (laughs) I mean,
0: there are (laughs) too many things that I see. I'm like, uh, I have to look. Is this the onion, or is this real? (sighs) Tomato or tomato. We could talk about that all day long, right? Yeah, because it's uh, a question of – it's bad when satire – strikes too close to the truth. And so I agree with you about the piecemealing, but it doesn't sound like you have any interest and the outlets that you've been on honestly have an agenda. And I'm going to preface it because we will start talking about what you went through. You found the list and that was during the Obama um, administration. And the first thing it seems like out of everybody's mouth was see there during the Obama administration, This problem happened with the kids being sent home, things like that. Yeah. Well, that's not – well, that's true. Did it exist under the Bush administration prior? uh,
1: No. Not Okay. So that
0: was unique to
1: the Mm -hmm. situation? Yeah. It started in 2000 – end of 2012, started 2013. And on that note,
0: too, I'm not necessarily a fan of either administration, but – it's not necessarily the administration even who is, is doing it. It's all the middle managers on the way up who create these policies. Is that fair to say?
1: Um. Yeah, it is. And the thing is, I, when I blew the whistle, I actually – I reached out to the, my congressional representatives and said, hey, you know what? Uh, the one I was, I was working with Grassley's office I said, I'll go talk to any news media. This is after I left the agency. And uh, nobody was interested. Now, can we go into that story of exactly what happened and then we'll sure. – I was working for the uh, the White House Security Council's human smuggling cell I think there was about 13 or 15 of us and I was the ero rep the ICRO, enforcement removal operations rep and uh, what we our main charter was to stop these criminal organizations smuggling organizations from smuggling kids humans any anything that could be smuggled up I um, migrants now we're not talking uh, narcotics or anything And what happened was I, um, I found human trafficking. Yes. Human trafficking, smuggling. And so what happens, I'll, I'll kind of explain how the, how the, how it works. So you have unaccompanied alien children. And I always like to say, and this is especially to those, the right leaning outlets is that we're not talking MS 13 types here. We're talking, there's a lot more to this problem than just the spattering of uh, teens and adults that are acting like children that are part of the, the criminal gang MS-13. Now these are tender age, unaccompanied alien children that are getting brought up to the border and either accompanying an adult. And when they get to the border, they're they're let loose to be unaccompanied alien children. And what happens? These children, thousands of them, each year there were sixty to eighty thousand of them. Why are they being used as a tool? Yes, can yeah, you explain I can, that. Yeah, sure. As soon as we get across the border. Okay, <laughs> I'll just because uh, it's a lot know, easier cool. once because I a lot of times I jump around and people are like, "What do you mean?" I am like, so I'll just explain how we get to them across the border. Cool. So what happens is they come to the border. Um, a border patrol agent or a customs uh, official will take them into custody, transfer them to ICE. ICE will uh, process them and then transfer them to Health and Human Services, who then transfers them to a contracted facility, who will then release them to a sponsor. Now, a sponsor is an adult. It uh, doesn't have to be family relation. It has to be someone that's going to come here and sponsor that child. Hey, I want to inter-
0: interrupt for one second. Mm-hmm. You just said that they're transferring to a sponsor. So you're not just packing them into a trailer and taking them to the border and dropping them on the other side? No.
1: No, they're, hmm. they're coming through the whole system, and then they're getting transferred over to a, a sponsor. So many of them actually will wind up actually living here. Oh, definitely, yeah. The unaccompanied alien children, I don't. I haven't looked recently, but i haven't I don't know of any of them that have been removed, okay, well, I'm just saying that's the oppression that has been put out that yeah and there's more to the there's more to that whole story and i I understand all the aspects of it it's just there's a lot to the story of kids in cages and uh families getting detained and their mm-hmm. their kids getting uh forcibly removed. But what I'm talking about right now is just the unaccompanied alien children. Okay, yeah, keep going. Uh, sorry, we, to No, we can talk about that later on. But um, so the unaccompanied alien children gets released to a sponsor. So we know the whole system there. So what happened was there was a spreadsheet, and the spreadsheet was, um, it was information taken from Health and Human Services about the sponsors. It was their name and date of birth. Now, what ICE did with their, um, with one of their uh, intel cells was ran the names. Of That sponsor list to see if any of them came back to criminals and what happened uh, at this list of twenty nine thousand sponsors thirty six hundred of them came back positive for criminal history. And that was up to and including sex offenders. So it wasn't just people who overstayed their visa. Now, there was a lot of people who were, um, I think the lowest was, uh, reentry after deportation, which is a felony offense. But a lot of it, you know, there was, I believe there was someone in there with homicide, domestic abuses, a whole assaults, all sorts of different things. Uh, and my biggest thing I focused on was there were sex offenders in there. How many of, yeah. how many people, if you're not vetting anybody at all, and what was happening was, I found out that the, there was no vetting going on. So ORR, the Office of Refugee Resettlement, which is a, a subsection of Health and Human Services, had mm-hmm. a mandate, and I looked this up before I blew the whistle and everything else, that they were supposed to run criminal history checks and take fingerprints of the sponsors, which they never did.
0: Which it makes sense. I mean, if you go to adopt a kid, you're supposed to go through a lot of
1: Can you imagine? Process. Yeah, but the thing is, they were the border was getting overflowed, Managers or whoever was in charge said, yeah, I'll just flush the system and give them over to sponsors. So we really didn't care. People in the organization did not care. Some people. Obviously, I cared.
0: (laughs) Uh, Yeah, you did. And we're going to go into that. But I mean, some uh, of this does seem to come out of apathy. Like,
1: Yeah, uh, I'm sure. There's so many of them. Mm Mm-hmm. But you can't. If one person, and my my whole thing has always been, if one of those children ends up in the hands of a sex offender, that's one too many. Oh God, yeah. And it's, it, you know, and and later on, Senator Grassley found that a lot of these little kids were getting labor trafficked. A lot of people don't realize that little kids are getting trafficked. There was a farm in Iowa, I believe it was, that used five of the kids for um, forced labor. Jesus, little kids. And you know, when I looked, this I had is the U.S. I know. But does anybody really know what's going on unless they actually listen? (laughs) I've been banging my head against the wall for how long now trying to tell people about this?
0: So if we're not fighting each other, we can maybe hear this? Yeah, exactly.
1: And like you said, you know, I I do end up on a lot of of different media outlets with the right leaning. But that's the thing is I'm just trying to get the message out there.
0: I'm not criticizing you. I just I wanted to keep pointing that out because that I feel is maybe one of the first responses Oh, he's always right. You know, he's a right winger. (laughs) <laughs> of course, he's right-wing. He's on wing. Bright- oh, believe on- me, I know. <laughs> so, I, I did want to address that, and I think it, it'll it help you, and maybe yeah, we no. can help you get onto some
1: other... Well, the other thing... Let me get back to the kids real quick before we... Please, uh- please. So, there was what they call an unaccompanied alien children database run by Health and Human Services, and I was charged with monitoring that database and getting everybody access in the cell. And I looked, man, on this database, and they kept the pictures of the kids on there, and there's. I, you know, little babies, three-year-olds, four-year-olds, and you're seeing their little snapshot, and you're like, "Oh shit!" I mean, excuse my French, but no, it's fine. If you release, are we essentially trafficking children? Because what happens is when these sponsors take charge of that kid, either one, they could use them for illicit or uh, egregious, horrible, whatever word you want to put Mm -hmm. out there. Cinnamon, cinnamon, you know what I'm, you know what I'm talking about. uh, and I'm a writer, right? And a doctor. <laughs> and a doctor. PhD. <laughs> so if, if we're essentially doing that, I mean, I, I just couldn't live with myself. I didn't do something about it. And the thing is, so let's say you take one of these kids and later on you want to get some sort of immigration benefit. You use mm-hmm. that kid as your sponsor now. I mean, you're going to say, hey, you know what? I can't get deported because I have this little child with me. Mm, wow. It's just, it, they're being used as, and I, you know. I, I any, can't help
0: but think that. You know, even foster kids are a nightmare situation yeah. here. So,
1: Now think about 60 – I'm going low figure – 60 to 80,000 a year. And, you know, the unaccompanied alien children thing was working for a while. But then what I found out while I was working at that cell – so I'll backtrack. So what happened was I found this list. Um, mm-hmm. I went to my chain of command and said, you know what? We need to go do an op. And I was an infantry officer captain. I worked high-level narco organizations – uh cases i knew we could do an operation right away and my concerns fell on deaf ears so i went to the office of special counsel and blew the whistle and i always tell people i was a true whistleblower because what i did was i actually went to the i notified my chain of command first and then i went to the office of special counsel i didn't leak to the media did Um, you document
0: every step of the way too
1: yeah of course um Mm -hmm. and then i say that just because uh, you know you have to i mean well, I'm putting out there for future whistleblowers. Yeah. And- okay. If you're if you <laughs> if you are a whistleblower, don't leak, because what happens, you lose your protection. Now, there's been so many whistleblower protection enhancement acts and everything else. Um, I specifically later on went to uh, Senator Charles Grassley because not not because he's a Republican, no, because he's the one that chartered all of these whistleblower protection. Mm. Uh, enhancement he's actually trying to get a whistleblower whistleblower day i mean he's like a huge proponent you can never you can't knock him at all about that that's also military oriented too because i
0: remember when we see something wrong um there was the ultimate threat of a congressional Mm -hmm. so i'm assuming that you have some of that instilled
1: yeah and that's and the thing is like and you know i i looked at these leakers and everything and leaking top seeking information going to wikileaks i was like that's just that's not That's definitely not the right way to go. Right. So look up the OSE.gov, do your research, um, and make sure you protect yourself. And you did, and you were
0: treated very well. They were very receptive (laughs) to it, and everything went okay. So good Uh, job. Yeah, thanks.
1: (laughs) So even if you do do the right things, (laughs) oh, my gosh, you know.
0: Yes, folks, there is a part two.
1: (laughs) You know, (laughs) there is a part two. And sometimes I'm like, man. And the the first thing in my book, my first paragraph, I think I say, I never wanted to be, I never wanted to write this book. I wanted to remain in the shadows and just protect our homeland. But uh, yeah. So what happened was I, I blew the whistle after months of inaction by Health and Human Services to do anything about the vetting. No operations happening. I actually um, allegedly was anonymous when I called, uh, when I agreed to talk to the actual Health and Human Services people. But in that conversation with them, I, and I, I guarantee – well, I don't guarantee it. I, I allege that the reason they had this conversation and the reason they drug out this process was to identify who this whistleblower was because mm. um, they were asking like kind of specific questions. So on a Thursday, uh, three months after I blew the whistle, I blew the whistle August 4th. Um, in October, I, um, I had this confidential anonymous phone call through my OSC rep to Health and Human Services. And in that, they were asking me certain questions about how I knew this information and stuff. And I wasn't even thinking at the time. But I told them I was a certified fraud examiner, which I was the only one in a whole cell that did that. Well, you added yourself. Yeah. <laughs> I essentially, because I wasn't even thinking as they were asking me these questions. And the other thing was, uh, uh, what do you call it? I, worked, I said I was associated with a human smuggling cell. And here I am like this train interrogator, investigator, and I was just so eager to fix the problem sure. that I walked right into it. The next business day I went to work, my detail was terminated. Now that's essentially you were fired? I was fired from the detail. I now, and what then, does that mean? Can then, you break that down? Sure. So I was detailed out to this human smuggling cell. Uh so what they did was they said, you know, we're no basically you're no longer welcome here. Your detail's terminated, go back to headquarters and mm. so i was it's like sent, an
0: assignment or a reprimand
1: yeah like essentially and um uh, wasn't really it was just boom you're terminated and they wouldn't give me a cause they just said oh you're not working out i'm like really i'm like uh all these policies and everything else i was trying to get in place because I, I was working on um trying to get a vetting thing in place for passports for special interest aliens, all sorts of things. So I'm like, oh, I'm not working out. Wow, that's interesting. So essentially, there was a target on my back, so I had to find a way out of there before I got fired or or worse. Who knows what would happen?
0: Hmm. Okay, so from there, is that when you reached out to uh, um, Charles Grassley? Or- yeah,
1: in, in October, I went to Grassley's office. And then with my whistleblowing, they actually went and uh, passed it to where they mandated um, the fingerprinting of sponsors. And vetting of the sponsors. Yeah. And I heard that they did DNA as well. Later on, they, yeah, they, they started doing because DNA, because so the UACs were getting, sponsors were getting vetted, but then all of a sudden a lot of, uh, a lot of adults were being paired. That's one thing I was going to uh, mention. A lot of this brings into a whole nother just can of worms. What there was, t- what happens is when an alien comes across the border mm-hmm. with a child, um, they get interviewed by an ICE officer down there, or BPE or, or one of them. And I, I get access to those interviews. And this is before I got canned from the detail. And what we were finding out was a lot of adults were getting paired with children using fake passports. Uh-huh. So when they come across, they're a family unit. Now, when you're a family unit, you would typically back then would get released into the, into the U.S. and they would give you a court date. Um, and you'd never be seen again. So you were seeing a ton, a ton, a ton of adults being paired with children. And, that's and it wasn't where, even their kid. Nope. And that's where the DNA came in. And I'm a huge proponent of just doing the, the DNA swabs, make sure that if, hey, if that's – because another thing going to happen is you tell a, a, a migrant that, hey, is this your child? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, if it's not your child and we DNA swab you, we could – uh, charge you with uh, 18 USC 1001 lying to a federal official and you're going to get federal time. Oh, no, that's not my kid. Mm, okay.
0: Um, so it's effective even just as a threat. Yeah.
1: But what do you do now that you, when you have 100,000 people coming across the border with kids? I think you've talked about um, port courts or something of that sort. Yeah. And, and you know, I, I'm a big fan of let's let's think outside the box. If you're going to um, – if you want to sign an executive order, see, I don't know the legality of it, but sign an executive order to forward deploy – well, there's two things, two aspects of that. We have 17 consulates in Central and South America – not South America, but uh, Mexico and Central America. Forward deploy uh, immigration judges and adjudication officers down there and mm-hmm. adjudicate asylum claims outside the ports. The ports are just overflowed. But on the other hand, do a port court. One day they come up, they meet with an uh, asylum, I mean an asylum officer. They meet with an asylum officer. If they have a legitimate claim, the next day they come back and they meet with the immigration judge. Immigration judge rules one way or the other, and if they want to appeal it, then they come back. It's back and forth, back and forth. I
0: like the idea of getting to things at the source. I do see one possible issue. What if they are in fact in danger do you have a way of
1: yeah. protecting them because if you say okay yeah come back tomorrow and then they're dead that's going to be a problem Well, if you have a legitimate asylum claim then bring them in um if you don't that's when you that's when you see your immigration judge or or you just get nixed right away but yeah if you have one of these legitimate asylum claims and the asylum officer says bam this guy this guy girl family is good to go bring him in it's no problem how, how do you tell that i mean it's it's all based on the
0: criteria.
1: It's the interview. I don't, i am not an asylum officer, so I don't know the criteria Mm -hmm. of how they do it. Uh, but the, the problem in the past was asylum officers were erring on a side of caution, which is a problem with that. But that side of caution was, Hey, 95% of the people I interviewed may have a legitimate. So they come into the, you let them into the United States. They give you an address that where they're going to be staying. And then, uh, They're they're given a court date and they never show up. And then that backtracks over to the sponsors. Now, Mm -hmm. when they say, oh, we lost track of all these kids, Health and Human Services gives a child to a a sponsor, right, through their contracted facility. That sponsor gives them an address and a phone number. Mm -hmm. Now – if Health and Human Services, whoever they contract that through, calls that phone number and nobody answers or that phone number is disconnected, they've technically lost track of that child. You don't have the resources to send a body out there to look and find out where that child is. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah it does. And
0: I mean, what I'm seeing here is trying to think of a solution and it just seems like a harder problem. It is. like I said, we have foster kids, <laughs> you know, kids that are born here. That um have criminal parents or situation mm-hmm. or they're orphans and oh my god, there's so many foster kids, American kids who are being abused and put in <laughs> situations and and I, I
1: can't help but see this. And the thing is adding see, to that, but do you see how <laughs> how it's complex complex and mind numbing it gets? I mean, I'm right now my mind is fried just thinking about man, how do you fix it? That's exactly my thought. And then I I think of the other side of you know all these poor
0: couples who legitimately just want a child so bad they would do anything and they jump through hoops and they can never get them and I'm just like I know. Mine's blown. And okay. who
1: is sending a baby to the border? That's <sighs> that a, is. A, and you know what man. I I always tell the story about this every border patrol agent you know knows someone that it's just after they're going after a group of uh, migrants that just leaves a kid behind. Like who just drops their kid and just says, "You know what? I'm going to look at my after my own safety." I mean, I just it's there's different concepts out there of how people think about their own children, and I don't know. That's a whole other story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not happy. You note. Know? it's. I think it's. Um, okay, so you let's say you you lean a little left. What would? No, you, well, probably not. I'm just saying. Let's say you lean a little left. Okay. We'll What's your solution? I mean, do you just open the
0: borders and then what happens? I don't know. I, I don't have a solid solution. First thing I do is legalize all the drugs. <laughs> that that uh, Honestly, that that's my first level solution. And funnel that money as hard and fast as possible into treatment programs, into education programs, into trying to alleviate the demand. That would really be my first thing. And the first step would be making um, pot legal everywhere. I, I think that cannabis can be legal across the the board. Um, a lot has been proven out that it's kind of like prohibition. I mean, what happened with that? We helped create the uh, mob. We help create all these yeah. things through it. So
1: that would be my my first solution. And that's where the first smugglers started coming from. At first, it was the opium, and then it was a, a cross border. Uh, alcohol. <laughs> that's, that's why right. the border patrol was essentially created. A lot of people think right. it was for migration, but I think the border patrol was created just to stop um, bootleggers so and stuff. Was that, that's 92? first.
0: Second, I would also use that to fund and really start looking at human trafficking. I'm not even going to worry about the labor at the moment, but um, prostitution, enforced prostitution, kidnapping. You mentioned
1: the children. Servitude. And that's why you, you do have to focus on that because the criminal organizations aren't just doing sex trafficking. It is. And when it comes to labor, that's servitude. A lot, let's say it costs you $5,000 and we're talking just Central and South American migrants, $5,000 per body to come across the border. How do you pay that off if you can only scrape together $3 right. a day? Now, another thing, just so we don't lose track of it, because I always wanted to bring this up, the same migration corridors, coming from South America up mm-hmm. to the United States are that are used by um, Central and South Americans are being used by aliens from other countries. So they, what they do is they transit in from Dubai or, or another port into uh, Brazil, and then they contract out to the same smuggling organizations to come up to the border. And that could be your Syrians, that could be your Ethiopians, it could be anybody from uh, overseas.
0: Now, in fairness on that, though, a lot of them do come in from student visas and they overstay. Um, you know, flying in just normally, oh, yeah. and a lot of them do come across Canada too. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, of course, the overseas folks. Yeah, so and but I, I wanted to point that out because I, I do feel like um, we kind of pick on on Mexico that well, we're going to you know, bring in all the terrorists, and that hasn't been proven out as
1: strongly. And that's one thing I want to touch on. So good. Let's say you're you're coming from one of these countries with uh, ties of terrorism, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, were you intel when you're in the military? I was not. Okay, so think about. I'm it. barely smart now. Whew, tell me about it. So I feel like after this conversation, I'm just kidding. <laughs> my mind is fried <laughs> for a Saturday morning. But um, let's say I and I always love. Well, you have to do extreme vetting. That's that's great. What that but mean? What you know? <laughs> look at it this way. And now this this always blows my mind. Let's say you are a terrorist. Let's say you have a bad bone in your body. Let's say you're just a bad guy. And you've never been encountered by law enforcement. You've never been identified by an intelligence official. Sure. That's and you've never had anything. How do you extreme vet someone that's never have anything contact with law enforcement, intel, or anything? Oh, uh, I'm just going to
0: speculate mm-hmm. on things that can be done. Obviously, they're not all perfect. Mm-hmm. But um, you look look for patterns of behavior. And most of all, you need to straighten out your attitude towards the communities where they gravitate.
1: Now, I'm talking about this. This is someone you just found at the border. Oh, I understand. He's in a group of 200 people that came from the same country. And you only have six people to extreme vet these. these, Oh, that's what I'm saying. It's
0: difficult. You may not catch him at the border. That's why you need to have a strong relationship with the community, oh, I agree, where they are going and have the reputation because maybe then one of those other two hundred people will say, "Um this guy's a little weird
1: yeah that, that comes I don't want a- him
0: to screw up my community i want don't want him to screw up where I'm going, and a lot of our hardened relations left right, however you want to put it, are causing some of these problems, yeah. If they feel more comfortable, they'll out them. Because nobody wants to have a kid who's stealing the hubcaps off your car. Nobody
1: wants the bad seed in the neighborhood. No, I agree completely. And everybody in law enforcement will agree the same thing. You have to build relationships. Not everybody in law enforcement, but, right. he, he, but the thing is when you're when you have everything coming up and you only have a finite sure. resources. And that's where we're at right now, is if you only have a finite resources. How do you focus them? And you you also learn from those who are doing it
0: better or have been doing it for a while. Like sorry, Israel has been having to uh, interview people who hate them for a long time. But And they have techniques in questioning, you know. I'm just saying there's a lot of intelligence, a lot of training that's very expensive, but we need to maybe bite the bullet and swallow that rather than just saying, okay, here's But then them. you have
1: to find the right people for the right job and you only have a finite amount of that. And that's where we're having The problem is you only have a certain amount of people who have the prerequisite mentality to go after a big criminal organization or the mentality to interview and interrogate someone. Exactly. So that's why you legalize
0: drugs and you now have more (laughs) funds to pay the certain people because a lot of the people who couldn't get the job because they did drugs at one point or they smoked pot at one point and they're not clean enough.
1: Now you can hire them. Oh, you know. You see what's ha- you see what happens though. It's like a spider web. It's like a can of worms that just keeps sure. growing and growing and growing. And how do you get to the point where everybody can sit down and actually solve the issue? Ironically, the only thing I could think of is itemizing. Yeah, because you could say piecemeal. okay.
0: Now, and yeah, you know what? I'm going to start. We're going to talk about this you know it's one thing. I'm
1: going to use that word. I'm going to write that down. Itemize because I keep using piecemeal. I like that itemize one. Okay, well
0: it's essentially the same thing. But yeah. if we could break it down and say, okay, we are all concerned about this one thing. No, never mind all the other. And anytime you bring that up, you put a you know dollar in the jar, whatever. Stop talking about. It. We're going to talk about this targeted thing. We all agree it's a problem. Now let's focus on just that problem. And I feel like um, I'm going to steal something from a former guest, Tyson Franklin. I heard him do it on a, another podcast, and it's an old meme, but I like it. Have you heard about the science teacher and the jar?
1: Yeah, mm-hmm. you fill it with a. Well, uh- Marbles and you pour sand in it or something like that.
0: Yep, yep. This is a perfect example of it. Now, if you take that jar and you say, "Here are the itemized These are the big problems. A, B, C, D. Those are our rocks," and you put them in the jar. Okay, is the jar full? Everybody say, "Yeah." No, not necessarily. Then you take some gravel and you put that in there. Is the jar full? No. Then you put sand in. Is the jar full? No. Didn't put the water in. Well, right now, we're filling it with water to begin with because it's all just Facebook memes and Twitter fights, and we're not actually solving any of the rocks. If we put the rock in the jar, a lot of these smaller problems, I think, might just go away in an ancillary manner. You know, it's like, you sometimes when you solve the big problems, surprisingly, other problems start to kind of solve themselves.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. I agree, and that's the thing is you can't look at it as like this huge, overwhelming, and hey, you know we're just going to argue about it all day long, and you're not going to get anything done that way.
0: Well, this is awesome,
1: (laughs) and I think you're doing the
0: right thing. I hope you get a chance and reach out to, if I'd say, um, outlets that may not be comfortable for you, or they may um, actually debate you, but I think your message will get out even more if you're a go-to guy.
1: Oh yeah, I'm trying. Try and get in there. That's why I wrote the book. Uh, my next stop is I'm trying to get on Joe Rogan's show. I think he's uh, he's a little all over the place with some of his guests, but he's got a decent audience. Uh, Joe Rogan's a pretty
0: open minded guy. Yeah, and he he may he may have you on. Yeah, we'll see. It it, it it's a matter of getting the shows leading up to that. So <laughs> hopefully this helps you uh, yeah. on that path. Yeah, I hope so. Well, hey, man, thank you so much for coming on here.
1: Thanks a lot, man. Hey there,
0: thanks so much for listening. If you'd like to learn more, please check out unstructuredpod.com. There you can find all the episodes, free subscription information, and most of the players and even how to contact me. I would love to hear from you. You can even set up a 15-minute call with me about the show or anything you like. Again, it's at unstructuredpod.com. And I hope to hear from you. Now, in the spirit of sharing, Here are other shows you may want to consider checking out. Thanks again.
1: Hi, I'm Tyson Franklin, the host of It's No Secret with Dr. T, which is a small business and marketing podcast. Each week, I interview business leaders who openly share the secrets to the massive success. It's No Secret with Dr. T will educate, entertain, and inspire you. Check it out. You'll find it wherever you listen to podcasts Or you can go to my website, TysonFranklin.com. I did not grow up with very much money. Money's energy. Money's something that that really scares me. You had about 60 grand in debt. Money isn't the
0: answer. Somebody should just give me a lot of money.
1: My dream was to be the WWE wrestler, but you realize that your dreams change over the years.
0: Money is a tool. It's a key to a gate. And at the other side of the gate is the things that you really want to do with your life it's the things that matter most to you it's pursuing those values that make you ultimately happy
1: listen to inspired money at inspiredmoney.fm